Well then, our guest this week is a journalist, writer and broadcaster who presents the arts and media show Front Row on Radio 4 and the Right to Reply series Newswatch for BBC News. Uh, She was a regular reporter for the Today programme and Newsnight in the 90s and reported on the O.J. Simpson trial during 96 to 97, as well as presenting Channel 4 News during the noughties. Uh, She's written for The Independent, The Guardian, Spectator, The Big Issue and The New Humanist. Uh, In 2009, she won Broadcaster of the Year at the Stonewall Awards. The following year, she won Celebrity Mastermind and she became that series Champion of Champions in 2019 with a specialist round on Space 1999. She appeared in a Moonbase Alpha costume. She's a huge fan of the work of uh, Jerry and Sylvia Anderson, as well as Star Trek, which pleases us no end. And she even provided the voice of puppet news reporter Juliet Destiny in two episodes of the Jerry and Sylvia Anderson star web series Nebula 75 in 2020 and 2021. Welcome to Scarred for Life, Samira Ahmed. How are you doing? Oh, thank you. Well, how did you guess I am Scarred for Life? Are you scarred for life? I mean, there's a question to start things off. Are you actually yeah, scarred yeah. for life? I'm a child of the 70s. I'm flipping scarred for life. <laughs> and, you, and, and that's a good thing. We, we welcome that on this podcast. I've just been scrolling through your Twitter feed on the train home uh, from work. God. You get to do some amazing stuff. You're into cool things and, and do cool things, Samira. Would you, would you say you're like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great position which you occupy or, or, or area that you're into? Yeah, the great revenge of growing up. And getting to interview all your pop idols from your childhood. So. Yes. And, and do they always turn out to be what you hoped they would be? Or does it happen frequently sometimes where you, you might interview someone that you've always looked up to and then they're not, they haven't quite um, wowed you as much as you would hope or thought? Well, they get older, don't they? <laughs> there is that. That's politely putting it. It's that, I'm in this weird situation now where my partner is, is, a, is 11 years older than me and he's older than a lot of the pop idols I idolised growing up and I was thinking you know that weird thing you think if I'd known this I could maybe have had a chance of one of them (laughs) (laughs) do you find that the more you're the more you look up to someone that you're interviewing the the harder it is to do I mean obviously you're professional you know what you're doing but like sometimes in my job with radio if I'm if I really kind of like respect the person that I'm interviewing or really into their stuff I find it harder to actually interview them properly because I kind of when you say respect you mean fancy a little bit of that (laughs) Like even boy crush, boy crush. This is already the raunchiest episode we've ever had. We're only a few minutes in. Yeah, no, no. Sometimes, sometimes you you just you you just think well, there's no point overthinking this because I will be far too flustered. So you don't, and then you go in and you're really calm, and it doesn't hit you till after you've left the room that I've just interviewed that person. Yeah. Um, but the main thing is I'm always really well prepared, which means you just go in confident and calm because you want to do a good interview. That's your job, and it helps you focus on that rather than. Being flustered. Being flustered and breathless and all that kind of thing. Uh, where did your love of f- science fiction start then, Samira? Because obviously um, I- I'm a little bit late to-, to jump onto this video chat. You guys were already um, geeking out big style about Star Trek. Where-, 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 where did your love from science fiction come from originally? So I grew up in the early 70s when there was a huge amount of the, the-, the dystopian films of the 60s were getting shown on TV. So the Andromeda strain, the 1973 kind of um, Michael Crichton film was a huge influence. Um, and then all the, you know, the sort of dystopian science fiction, like sort of um, Space 1999. And I did love Star Trek at least as much. But the dystopian stuff was the stuff that I always made my games out of. So I always used to like build little bases and then I would yeah. smash them up because obviously they'd be constantly bombarded by aliens or asteroids or 
nuclear disaster. Um, so I, 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 I often played post-apocalyptic games as a child. And interestingly, my daughter did the same. She had a lot of My Little Ponies, and there would always be some kind of apocalyptic scenario in which the world was destroyed and they were struggling to make a new life, these My Little Ponies oh, wow. in the post-nuclear ways. So even though she didn't grow up with you know the nuclear threat the way that I think our generation did, there's something about, <laughs> I don't know, it runs in my genes, about yeah. loving the darkness, I don't know. The dark side of things. I mean, you may have already kind of answered this question, but is there kind of a strand or a thread in, in stuff pop culture-wise that captivates you? Is it is, it, is dystopian, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that kind of connects all these dots of what it is that you're into, would you say? I think uh, part of it is I genuinely was very curious and I just lapped up everything I got exposed to. And as it turned out, everything has become useful in later life. You know, whatever you watch as a child, cult TV, you end up finding a use for it, even if you end up just interviewing the people who made it. Um, part of it was actually really interesting role model. So Maya in Space 1999, even though it was Series 2, she was such an interesting character. She was like a female Spock, the, the original uh, Uhura in um, Star Trek. You know, I loved... You know, these interesting women are often the Bond, and often they're very positive characters in a quite... You know, difficult scenarios. I mean, Uhura is often being threatened with violence and she never, ever backs down. Um, an episode like Space Seed, where she's you know, really, really under, under threat. And I just think maybe that's one of the reasons I bonded with all this sci-fi, that even though it looked horrible in some ways, there were all these really amazing women in it. And then you know, there were also some men that I liked, but that's another conversation. <laughs> and, I mean, in terms <laughs> Spock, of... basically. Spock, not Kirk. <laughs> so it's a then, great conversation you have with other women you know it's just like Spock or Kirk and then you just know that you're not going to have a fight oh, so is that the kind of oasis or blur of uh, of that particular mm, era of science fiction absolutely. in many ways I think it still is in many ways it comes up in conversation every so often when I you talk to female friends or meet someone new I get on with and it just comes up sorry Samira Spock were you Spock or Kirk? or Kirk what was your kind of uh, leaning if you don't mind us asking Spock okay fair enough Dave? I'm not asking whether you're Spock or Kirk, Dave. I'm just saying, no, well, there's a question here. It's, it's, well, yeah, it's I want to know now. It's going to be Spock. Oh, yeah, actually, yeah. yeah I, I, what I was going to say was, Smith, do, do you watch Strange New Worlds? They actually, in one episode, they call him Hot Spock. He's just like, they... <laughs> I haven't watched it yet. I've watched a lot of spin-offs, but I haven't got around to that. But I did meet Leonard Nimoy. Oh. I went to a Star Trek convention in the um, uh, very early 90s, and he told me that he had tried to buy the rights to make Doctor Who because it was in the wow. interregnum when there was nothing was happening. Wow, that's amazing. Shortly before, a couple of years before the uh, Paul McGann film mm. was made. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, and there's an episode of Deep Space Nine as well with uh, called uh, Trials and Tribulations where they go, Cisco and Dax go back in time and Dax points out that Spock is actually the attractive one. So, uh, Well, I mean, depending on how dark you want to go, in um, Patterns of Force, of course, he gets stripped to the waist and, and tortured. Yes. Is, is that a favourite episode of yours, Samira? <laughs> well, I can say it's because he's still from it. It's actually quite a moment. Uh-huh. <laughs> was that was that the scene? Am oh, I right in thinking that's one of the scenes that burst kind of fan fiction, as in or slash fiction? Yes. As it became slash known. fiction. I'm... Yes. I don't read slash fiction. I don't write slash fiction. <laughs> I don't want to go too far down there. I did actually, you know, I once read some slash fiction to prepare for interviewing Mark Ruffalo. It was not long after the whole, you know, Avengers bromance thing about him and who was the character? Was it the um, uh, Iron Man character? Him and Robert Downey Jr. There was a there was a whole slash fiction, and I thought, oh, I'll just go and look at some of it. And I looked at it. Oh my god, it's so disturbing. And there's all these little codes that they give you on it. This is non-con. And stuff. <laughs> 
it was quite something. Uh, you are listening to Scarred for Life, the UK's number one erotic science fiction podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. And uh, you know, I mean, for someone, I, I, I've not watched a lot of Star Trek, right? Do you, in terms of you guys, if you if you love Star Trek, are all eras of Star Trek well respected, or is there no. the not? So just talk me through what 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 is the considered to be the best, and then the worst Original of Star is Trek? The best, the the second, the next generation spin-off, and I've interviewed Patrick Stewart again quite recently. I've interviewed him a few times, but he says you know the first couple of series weren't great, and he wasn't great in it. He was too theatrical. It finds its feet, and I remember getting really into it. Did some quite interesting ethical stuff. If you watch the very first series, so interesting. They, they had this whole idea, what would the future be like? Because it's going to be really cool and egalitarian. So yeah. in the background, you'd have men wearing dresses walking around. The idea that men would wear dresses too, yeah. like women, because it's mm. equal. And then they dropped that quite quickly. So, so is, is, can, I mean, is Star Trek uh, often dystopian? I always thought Star Trek's quite, a, quite, quite positive. It is sort outlook. of optimistic, but there's a lot of bad things that happen. And you get, you get to the episodes where you know, um, Patrick Stewart gets captured by the Cardassians and held as, as a hostage and tortured. It's horrible. It's really dark stuff. Not in a good, not in a good slash fiction way, just in a horrible way. And then what do you think about, like, I, I, sometimes, I mean, this, this is a regular thing on this podcast where, um, you know, sometimes we don't have the special effects. The acting has to be a bit better or you can work within the, a, a single scene, uh, a bit of a setting, and it's a little bit like a bit of theatre. How do you feel about stuff with the CGI and graphics and the way it's you know some science fiction has gone with like big flashbangs and explosions and the best graphics in the world? What, what's your kind of thought on that, Samira? Um, I, I think on the whole, it, it's it's cover for the fact that you haven't got the basics right. I mean, there's a film like 2001 which holds up magnificently, and I remember interviewing Douglas Trumbull about that amazing Stargate sequence, which goes on for minutes. I mean, it goes on for minutes, and it's made you know with analog technology and it adds something you know it's a kind of psychedelic experience it's weird isn't it there's something about something wow. about that over CGIing where i don't know it just yeah like it loses anchor with what it's supposed to be doing and it just seems kind of a yeah it's odd it's um strangely uh uh you feel distanced from the movie and it you know it doesn't actually add anything to it at all steve well this is something me and dave always say it's we grew up in an era where the effects weren't great doctor who Space 1999 looked like a movie to me, but a lot of British... Had some very expensive special didn't. effects, though, to be fair. Space yeah. 1999. Yeah. Oh, that's the thing. Space 1999 blew me away. But now, mm. superhero films, for example. I grew up with superhero comics, but I am sick and tired of the films because no matter how engaging the first two acts might be, the third act is always pixels flying around, and I just switch off because it doesn't look real. I know. And it's there's just no video game stuff. reality to it. It doesn't grapple you. No, not at all. There's no physics. There's everything's bouncing everywhere. I'm clearly a, a very retro guy. I've told you this story today. I went into uh, CEX and bought a DVD of a, of an old film. I think it was like the Maltese Falcon from like 1941. And the guy behind the counter looked at this. And he goes, oh, I don't watch these old films. Uh, the CGI is not great. And I said, what's the oldest film you'd watch? What's the oldest film you put on the TV? Uh, 2012. And wow. I, just, I just think that's... You're losing so much because, as you say, when they didn't have the effects, they had the scripts, and they had the actors. Yeah, and they ha- yeah. They had. Yeah. They- oh, it's interesting if you watch something like the you know, the original King Kong, was it 1933? Mm. Yeah. And the special effects are a bit crude, although there's something very engaging, isn't there, about that stop frame animation, like the Ray Harryhausen mm. films. 
I wonder, you know, if you get your kids young, I, used, I got them to watch it when it was on TV on Christmas some years back, Close the Curtains, Made Them Popcorn. And it's, it's really enticing because a lot of it is about, it's actually a film about the idea of fear. And there's a great moment on the ship when they're heading out to this island and the director tells the actress, I want you to scream as if you've seen the most terrifying thing you've ever scre- seen. She starts screaming and the camera, she's focused on her face screaming and she hasn't seen anything yet. Yeah. It's all building up to the horror of what's to come. I mean, that's the power of great filmmaking. It's not all about special effects. And, and Samira, do you, can you can you pinpoint kind of one book or TV show or film that kind of completely sparked your imagination? Like take it, the earliest one you can remember that kind yeah. of really captivated you? I think it would be The Andromeda Strain, which is, is it 73? I think it is. It's a Michael Crichton film um, based on his own, I think it was based on his own novel about um, an alien virus that lands on Earth and wipes out a small town and scientists go in to you know take samples and they've got one or two survivors in a kind of isolation unit I mean, it's very interesting thinking from the point of view post-pandemic and they're trying to find a cure before it spreads and a lot of it was about they have to work their way down the decontamination levels there's a woman scientist among the group they're all actually quite middle-aged and old they're not kind of young and sexy it's not Rachel Welsh Fantastic Voyage which incidentally is a bloody brilliant film as well and there was just something about this film which was kind of quite clinical and cold and scientific but dealing with a real human threat and the color scheme and the, the you know the even though it was probably quite crude at the time it looked great it looked like 2001 sort of special effects to me yeah um, I love that and, and do you scare but, easily? Are you someone that would, would scare easily with, 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 you know, let's say horror movies or scary stories I, or anything like I that? I wouldn't say I scare easily. I'd say I scare deeply. So I also love those Hammer horror double bills. Well, they weren't Hammer double bills, but horror double bills BBC Two showed in what, about the very early 80s. And I used to stay up late on oh, a Saturday yeah. night. And the first one would be something quite old and unscary like a black and white film like The Tower of London. And the second one would be a Hammer. And there was one which was called The Skull, Peter Cushing. And it was just so much of it was just the atmosphere. He's kind of... gets. He has this skull and he starts to get absorbed by evil. And those films would keep me up, but I loved watching them. Um, and they, they would mark me, but more just, I don't know, they just, I've always embraced the dark side of things, but it's just I carry it within me. And it just means I'm, <laughs> I can cope with what life throws at me. I don't know. Absolutely. Well, let, let's talk about Space 1999 because you, you uh, well, tell us why you, you, you love that program so much. What does it mean to you, Samir? Yeah, so I was exactly the right age when it first started being shown 75 I was seven years old and in the South London area it was shown on LWT on a Saturday morning even though um, anyone who knows but she knows it was designed to be a kind of big you know primetime evening entertainment very expensive you know it was more than a hundred thousand an episode I think um, and so it was very grown-up entertainment for children's slot so it was like a proper dark version of Star Trek they're they're going on a long voyage, but they've got no control over where they're going because, you know, it's been a nuclear accident and hurled moon out of Earth's orbit. And all the aliens they encounter tend to be quite malign rather than nice ones. And occasionally they get it wrong when Christopher Lee turns up to be a really nice alien who wants to help them out. Um, and there's always, they're always under attack. They're always struggling to kind of keep things going. Um, the aesthetics of it I loved. It had a lot of white Italian... Um, interior design it was like cutting edge plastic molded furniture very clean lines the costumes you know those belgian unisex costumes the first series just looked amazing and there were lots of interesting women in it and i mean a lot of my you know my 
the games I played as a child with my cousins and my, si my sister. We used to pretend to be Space 1999. And I would make little models that were a mixture of that and 2001 and the Andromeda Strain. Um, so I guess I quite like that world building where you're constantly under threat and bombardment. You're constantly having to rebuild what's being destroyed. Um, yeah. And of course, there were lots of strong role models in it. You know, lots of women who were scientists and doctors and explorers. So... Um, yeah, and also I like that, what's her name? Maya. She was the brainiest person on the moon base. Yeah. She had the hot Italian boyfriend. And I like the idea that you could be super <laughs> and attractive. And again, again, one of my joys of my life, I have met many of these people. I've met Martin Landau. I've, I've interviewed Catherine Schell. I've interviewed Nick Tate. I wrote a big feature for a TV Years magazine a few years back. Um, and that show has given me so much joy. It really yeah. has, as well as being incredibly dark. Yeah, I saw you. Uh, I saw your uh, celebrity mastermind uh, <laughs> answering questions on Space Ninety Nine. I've got one question for you. Would you have scored much more highly if each of your questions had been five hours long? I know. I don't know what they've done to that show. Um, <laughs> I know. I know. It's like, I, I, give me a question that shows that I've got the knowledge. Don't, don't give them something they could just guess at. Um, but uh, I got all my questions right. Is the main thing, and I. I borrowed, funny enough, I'm, I'm going on All in the Mind next week to talk about being under interrogation in that way mm. and why I really enjoyed it. And I think it's a lot of it's your attitude. So um, Jamie Anderson, Jerry Anderson's yeah. um, son, um, put me in touch with a super fan uh, called James who lent me a costume. I thought if I'm going to go on, I might wow. as well go on and have some fun because I'll probably not win because everyone else is a champion as well. <laughs> and I was the only woman as well in my heat, my, my round. And it just meant that it took the pressure off me. So I had a really good time. I went, I cosplayed as Sandra. <laughs> hey, Sandra Baines. Your questions went on forever. It was like an essay you were reading out. Just... I know, I know, I know. Uh, so do, do you own, speaking of, you know, memorabilia, you, you, you borrowed the outfit from a super fan. Do, do you own much kind of movie or pop culture memorabilia, Samira? Not really. Um, I, I, you know, I have asked people to sign things. They get signed copies of books a lot. And um, I, no, I don't think so. Um, I don't, in fact, to be honest, I don't really do cosplay, but I'll show you what my daughter made for me for Christmas for you. Hang on. Oh. So... Obviously, listeners will have to is believe you. But she she made me a picture of the Starship Enterprise. Isn't it beautiful? And she's obviously cut wow. it out and stuck it on That's several years ago. Oh. And you know what's a lovely coincidence about this? Is that the same year, I don't know where I'd seen it, but I got her a notebook and it was a captain's log notebook. Because, <laughs> of course, I raised them to watch huge <laughs> science fiction. In fact, Excellent. my children, I'd meet parents at parents at night and they'd say, oh, you're the kids, the ones who've watched The Prisoner. And yeah, think, yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, there's oh, a lot to be brilliant. said for yes. raising your children in your own cult TV viewing habits. <laughs> so in terms of, like, stuff that's around now, do you think the things that are around now, current science fiction, etc., is, is as good as it used to be or, or is it kind of slim pickings these days? Do you know, I'm so worried about being one of those people who turns into a grumpy old curmudgeon and says, oh, it's not as good as it was. I don't know. I don't think one has to keep um, watching everything. And I, I think, I mean, for example, I watched some of the first series of Stranger Things. I haven't bothered sticking with it particularly, but I liked what it was trying to do. Um, I wouldn't, I don't know enough. I don't watch enough. Um, new TV, to be honest. I watch what I've had to review for Front Row, but I, I just read so much. I read a lot of books and I, I do like films. Um, and I go to the theatre a lot more now. So I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to say. I don't know, I'd be interested in what you all think. What is good out there? Dave and Steve, what are you saying? Strange New Worlds is brilliant. I'm the same, to be honest. I, because of, but well, because of Scarred for Life, me and Dave have had to watch 
I watch mostly old stuff yeah. because that's yeah. what we write about. I am years, literally years behind on new television. Like I, people keep recommending stuff in real life and on Twitter, and I'm like, I've never even heard of it. I don't know what that is. So I'm a Star Trek fan. So the only thing I keep up to date with is Star Trek, <laughs> pretty much. I will make time out of my day for whatever Star Trek series. Do you know one of the new things I did, which is interesting, you know, Life on Mars, you know that there's a new oh, series. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I took part in a in a read-through of, of the this episode that has not yet been made. And it's set in 1997. It's like... Oh, in the yeah, Lazarus. Years. It's such a... Yeah, Lazarus. I, I took part in Lazarus. And, it's so, and I was really interested in the idea of like, that series coming back in that yeah. way. I mean, I would have watched that. I, I, I've tried to watch Marvel stuff, but I'm watching something and I don't know what's going on. And it turns out I've had to read a comic that came out 20 years ago to know what's going on with... And it all connects together. And it's too much to take in, I think, because... <laughs> There's, there's too much stuff in, like, for example, the Marvel Universe. There's too much stuff in... And the Star Star Wars Universe as well. There's so many spin-offs. I mean, I like the Han Solo prequel. I thought that had some style to it. It was very 1940s um, sort of film noir feel. And it was written by yeah. Lawrence Kasdan and his son. So it was, had more of an Empire Strikes Back feel. And I thought it was a shame they, that they didn't have the guts to release that at the right time of year because they released it in the summer, I think, when they should have held it to Christmas. Yeah, it went under the um, radar a little bit, that one, didn't it? Yeah. But, but they're banging and out. It's... The only problem is that they're banging out a lot of, uh, you know, they do a Star Wars movie prequel, you know, you know, and the side story. And it's like, a, I know, I, I feel like it's in, Star Wars is in kind of good hands with Disney, but they are kind of definitely rinsing it a little bit. It's, it's just content. Now, it's, it's, it used to be the world would grind to a halt when something Star Wars came out, and it's just content. They're grinding out content because they, they have to. It's just a factory, which yeah. is a real shame. It's finding the balance, isn't it? Because with Doctor Who, it was the other extreme where they weren't, you know, there wasn't a commitment to putting out enough. I mean, there's no reason that series shouldn't have been running many more episodes a year. And, um, you know, I'm glad I'm glad Russell C. Davis is back in many ways because I think he gets it. But, you know, it'd be interesting to see they've got the Disney tie up now and there's already been stuff about how writers are going to lose their residuals under the new um, ownership. So it just feels like, you know, that might be going down the, the Star Wars route. I don't know. I don't know for sure, but um, mm. you know, it's like, it seems to be feast or famine, doesn't it, with all these classic brands? I mean, going back to the the reviewing side of things, Samira. You know, mm. for front row for Radio Four, you're talking about reviewing and and watching things for for work. Does that does that take the um, enjoyment sometimes out of it a little bit? Because I, I, I mean, I remember I, I I reviewed video games for a little bit, being someone that played a lot of video games, and then. I, I kind of felt like I had to get through a load of video games to be able to write the reviews and, and couldn't kind of take it in as well. Is that something that you've had an issue with or has it been fine? No, no, I love it. I mean, I did a degree in English literature, completely non-vocational, and it turned out it was perfect preparation for the job I do now. I mean, I go to the theatre up to three or four times a week. Wow. I see stuff which I love. I see stuff which I loathe. And I like that I get exposed to that. I'm not just choosing what to see. I mean, it's a huge privilege. I mean, I've seen a couple of utter stinkers I mean, just awful shows. And you just say, oh, God, what am I going to do with this if we're, if I'm interviewing someone involved in the creation of it? It's a real dilemma. And what you often do is you talk to them about everything else in their career and just a very small amount about the show. Circle um, around it, yeah. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's, it's great. It's great to see stuff that it doesn't quite work and think about why. And I'm glad the experimental stuff still gets commissioned. So, no, I never feel it's a burden. Occasionally I've had to stick with something that I've not wanted to watch. But I often think it's good for me, you know, in the old days when everyone had to sit and watch the same telly because there was only one telly in the house, 
I think it probably made us more tolerant in ways. And we had to put up with things like our parents saying, is that a man or a woman when they were watching you watching Top of the Pops? Whereas now everyone can just, you know, you can just go down that furrow and the algorithms throw more of the same stuff at you. And I think it's good to be exposed to stuff. Like I wouldn't automatically ever choose to watch a, a crime drama because I covered real crimes as a court reporter for 30 years as you know at Channel 4 News and at the BBC and I sat in on horrendous crimes murders and rapes and the rest of it why would I want to see entertainment made out of it and every so often I have to watch drama and sometimes you see ones which are really well made and sometimes you see ones which just reinforce your are your you know reasons for never wanting to watch this stuff so um I like to, I like to think I'm still open-minded so, I mean, you, I mean, obviously you covered the O.J. Simpson trial. I remember being glued to that on, on TV at the time, you know, because of the, it was it was broadcasted and so on. But it, there's been a couple of attempts to kind of like, not fictionalise it, but they've done a couple yeah. of good documentaries about it. Did you watch them? What did you think of that kind of, you know, view of something that you were present during? I, I didn't. And that's partly because I didn't really have the time. I covered, I should say, I actually covered the, the civil trial, which was, the, tr- the case that the families brought after he was acquitted in the criminal courts. Right. And that was the one that he lost. And I sat through most days of the evidence. And, you know, part of it is when you know the real story, why would you watch a fictionalised version? Like my daughter and everyone I know has been saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, have you seen the Netflix? You're in that Who Killed Jill Dando doc? Because I covered every day of the original trial of yeah. um, the man who was originally convicted and then subsequently um, cleared of her murder. And I just thought, Apparently, and they don't tell you who killed her because they don't know. So why would I watch a whole series that would tell me nothing that I didn't already know? And that's what I have problem with is how much content out there on streaming services is just seems to be stringing out an idea. A lot of podcasts do the same. I don't have time for that. Like, you know, give me something that I need to know. Construct it artfully, like I, Claudius, which is bloody amazing. I only stumbled across that as a child and thought it was odd. I've been yeah. watching it now properly for the first time it is gripping well-told drama every episode tells you something new it's exciting that's what it should be telly and then in terms of like you know reviewing and offering uh, a view on things for, for people obviously now people will watch tv shows and you almost get this kind of stream of almost like a live review from the general mm. public on twitter with hashtags has the has the, has the kind of position of uh, uh, a reviewer change slightly or do you, do you find it tricky to combat this kind of like, the noise out there the mm. content that we've been talking about I loved what Twitter did to reviewing I like that it became more democratic I like the the buzz of watching a show or like even live tweeting you know the, the prime ministerial debates or something the, the general election I don't know now it's just so big and noisy I wonder if it's just too unwieldy also with current ownership of X it's become quite aggressive I mean even more aggressive and I think unhinged so I think it's of limited value I think there's in a weird way proper reviews are even more valuable because they give you some expert insight and well-written reviews I really like reading them Um, I don't really consider myself a reviewer I consider myself an arts journalist because I'm more often interviewing people about what they've made than I am reviewing it per se and I'm quite wary of kind of giving an opinion and I know the old dilemma do you give things stars or not Um, so I'm not I'm not too worried about that um, I just think in the end we make our own choices, don't we? I mean, some people deliberately don't read any reviews before they go and see something. And there are critics who consistently, like, it's like, have they seen the same film as I have? Like Eileen, which has just just come out. It's an amazing film. And there's a particular male film critic, and I knew he would hate it, and he hated it, you know, and it just... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> True to form. All the women I know loved it. 
Yeah, going back to the crime thing, do you think 24-hour rolling news has made more of an entertainment of crime and the detection and the trials and things like that? Do you think that's because they've got to fill 24 hours of ongoing news? I, well, it's interesting because the BBC is now lost its dedicated domestic channel. You know, we've mm. kind of lost some of that. I know that, do you remember the, the case of that British nanny who was charged with murdering the yes. baby in a camp? It's a really sad case, terrible yeah. case. Yeah. I remember those cases about 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, were getting, you know, rolling coverage. Mm. Um, and to some extent, it was, you know, we were, we were seeing it on British news channels. I think that's declined a bit, actually. Yeah. I don't know what you think. Um I mean, to be honest, so much is being live streamed so you can watch stuff happening anyway. I mean, watching parliamentary proceedings being live streamed, I think it's like watching a scene of crime, isn't it? <laughs> watching the COVID inquiry. <laughs> I mean, I have no objection to that being live streamed. And uh, I mean, just to, uh, just to change tack slightly and, and just to go back to science fiction that we were talking about a little bit earlier on, um, as someone that, that's grown up reading and enjoying and loving science fiction and the wonders of, you know, space stations out there and, and the wonder of science. How do you feel about where we're at with um, science and the, uh, uh, as yet no aliens or, or not proper robots walking yeah. around or anything? Are you a little bit disappointed with it, Samira? Yeah, so I have, I, have, I have two feelings. On the one hand, I'm hugely disappointed and I wrote a big piece for The Independent when the last space shuttle flight was happening and it was called something like how the space shuttle broke my heart and left me on the gantry of broken dreams because I went to NASA as a small child when they were developing the space shuttle program. I wrote to NASA about Brian Cox and got a letter back, you know, saying, what are we going to live on Mars and all that stuff. And the space shuttle seemed to be that next step that we were going to have a shuttle that would take us regularly to build bases. So on the one hand, I'm very sad, and especially as space technology was a very positive thing that was going on and a form of diplomacy, you know, when you had Skylab and those tie-ups with the Russians and the Americans and Space. It was very positive at the time of Cold War. On the other, I think, given all we know about climate change, the idea that we want the likes of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos to be spending billions of their money that could be spent alleviating problems on Earth and pursuing their rocket-shaped dreams, I find rather disheartening. And incidentally, I have pointed that before, but the whole premise of Space 1999 is based on someone like, probably, Elon Musk, you know, burying nuclear waste on the moon and it all goes wrong. And, you know, um, that's start yeah. of another disaster. <laughs> so I just think the commercial, the commercialization of space, I think, is the problem. If you were offered the chance to go up in, in, in a space shuttle or go, go into space, Samira, would you go? It's a really good question. Part of me thinks, yes, I was talking to my friend Kevin Fong, who was an amazing scientist and who did get very far down the shortlisting for um, the European Space Astronaut Programme. And he'd always wanted to, I mean, he and I, we we are both Space 1999 obsessed. And um, and I love the idea that he was prepared to be an astronaut. And I was talking quite recently and he didn't, he didn't in the end get into the final um, oh. thing, but he got very close. And I said, God, was it a dilemma? Because you know, he's married with children. And he said it was a big thing. Like if he'd got into the selection programme, it's very well you thinking I really want to do this, but it's a huge thing. Yeah, uh, and I remember would... the Challenger disaster, so I don't know. Oh, it's awful. I think, I think I would go. Oh yeah, I think I would go. I mean, talk um, about scarred for life. I mean, that was um, there's a fantastic Netflix documentary about all of that, and it was just a uh, you know school kids watching it, and it was the the other thing about Challenger was obviously they had the teacher on board, and it was that yeah. that step towards you know welcoming kind of civilians into uh, NASA and, and everything like that as well. So. Uh, no, absolutely, really, really horrendous. That that's for sure. Uh, you know, just sorry, just a quick question about um, space nineteen ninety nine. What, what do you have a collective term for each other? You call yourself ninety niners, or what's the phrase? Um, Alphans. 
What's that? An elephant. Moon-based moon elephant. Moon elephant. Ah, there you go. And then aliens. Am I very right? Quick. Oh, I don't Am know. I, I mean, okay? uh, uh, <laughs> Steve and Dave, is that what you would call a, a, a Space 1999 fans? Elephants? Yeah, I, I guess yeah. so, yeah. Absolutely, elephants. <laughs> yes. I mean, what's great is, it's like, as I said, I went to see Martin Lando speak about this at the BFI a couple of years ago, shortly, a couple of days before I interviewed him. And he gave really detailed answers about what life on Moonbase Alpha was like. I talk about method acting, and he's explaining why they couldn't reproduce because they, they only had a certain <laughs> wow. number of resources and how they made their food. And I thought, I love this man. He made that series 50 years ago, and he's still living on it. <laughs> oh. So about the challenge of disaster, it was first announced on British News on John Crane's News Round. Which is an incredible disaster. Yeah, it was because they were showing it live on John Craven's I love news. That show. And, yeah, I love that. Show. And so the first people who saw the challenge disaster were kids watching John Craven's news round, which is very scary. Well, I wrote a whole I wrote a whole thing for broadcast magazine about why that is such an important program because it, you know it covered the the Khmer Rouge yeah. genocidal you know actions in in Cambodia. I mean stuff it's that it, everything could be told for children if you tell it right. And I got a news round news hound badge when they read one of my letters out on that show. Wow. That was a great thing about it because it actually, it actually explained the news better than the news as an adult. And loads I, of I adults kind of... watched it. I don't know why they yeah. pushed it onto. I mean, CBBC's now on a niche channel. It goes back to, in a sense, what the whole conversation starts with, which is when we've lost shared multi generational viewing. Yeah. I think it has a, a fragmentary effect on society. And I know you can't turn the clock back and there's a very good reason why you should have some dedicated channels. But I miss the fact that they haven't bothered to think, you know, we should have a show like News Round on now on BBC One, which yeah. is yeah. family viewing. It's aimed at kids, but loads of adults will watch it. Yeah, absolutely. And then just a, a final thing before we get to your scars, Samira, about uh, the other side oh, of, uh, of the question about um, is, was, was aliens. You know, obviously we talk about the, the technology side of things, but mm. are you a bit disappointed that we've like, as far as we can tell, the, the best we've got alien-wise is like a like a bit of like bacteria under a rock in on Mars. Are we hoping for something a bit better by this point? Well, I'm quite excited, although I'm a bit worried about... Like, there's a book I read. I got given it by an American friend who was visiting my parents. And it was from a, it was from a, a horror film that I've never seen, even to this day. And it was a f- book called The Incredible Melting Man. And it was about an, oh, an astronaut who goes back from space. He's well, been infected. Great cool, and, and he's all disgusting <laughs> yeah. and melting and kills. And I... <laughs> I have read the novelization and it was pretty scary. So um, on the one hand, I'm kind of terrified of the idea of bacteria from space and what they might do. Same with the Andromeda strain. On the other, I think often it's these incidental things that you can discover. And um, I still think the best film about alien contact is Contact. I love that film. Yes, um, it's a good film. Even yeah. though they bottle the yeah. moment of contact where he's like becomes her dad and he's like, hi, daughter. And, you know, it's very schmaltzy. Everything apart from that is incredibly exciting and terrifying. And I think genuine, exciting space travel has an element of terror and awe just because of the unknown. Yeah, love that. I, I mean, and also the other flip side of that is what if we are alone? My God, imagine if it's just us like wrecking our little planet and then that is it. Yeah, is that worse or is that better? What do you think? Worse. I don't know. Definitely worse. <laughs> you think it's worse, worse. Dave? Yeah, definitely what worse. worse. Because you look up into the stars and there's billions of stars there's billions of galaxies there's no way we're the only people around there's just no way probability see, no. yeah impossible yeah you know probability states you know it, it, there must be more out there yeah. you know so yeah I, I believe in aliens i'm not i don't necessarily believe they come here but i believe there are aliens mm. that's why the well, carl sagan's book is so interesting because he's really thought it through and he was 
um, that book he wrote about, what's it called? You know, about science and rationality. It was something about science as a candle in the in the in the in the darkness. He wrote it in the early nineties, and it's all about the rise of disinformation and it's conspiracy theories, and it's so prescient of where we are. Well, listen, let's uh, let's uh, switch then to your uh, scars. The way this works, Samir, is that you bring with you three things that have petrified you as a kid. Uh, so can we get your first scar, please, Samira? The rabies, C-O-I ad. So oh. the, have other people chosen this? They must have chosen this. Uh, it depends which one, because I chose it in our first episode. There's one that I cannot watch now. I've got a phobic reaction to it as a 53-year-old. Is it rabies means death? It might be. It's just there's a child shivering and... Just a sense of if you oh. bring your dog on a boat across the water, you might be right. bringing it, yeah. an alien disease that me. will destroy the whole country. If you're bitten by a rabid animal, the treatment which tries to check the disease is long and painful. And it doesn't always work. If the treatment fails and rabies does develop, it kills. So don't let selfish sentimentality tempt you to smuggle any animal back into Britain. Keep rabies out, because rabies kills people. There's a theme we've, we've identified here, thanks to you, which is I am obsessed with the idea of, of, of some kind of virus yes. killing humankind. Yeah. And, and in the 1970s, the, 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 you know, the um, what is it? Central Office of Information, which was shut down, of course, by Cameron's government in uh, 2010 or 11, shortly after that government came to power, um, yeah. you know, put out a campaign emphasising the importance of protecting us from rabies, which was raging in Europe. You know, that, that scary place out there where scary old French Europe. dogs go around slavering and might bite you. So I was absolutely terrified of rabies just randomly. Um, incidentally, I'm not a pet person and I don't think it's directly connected. I actually have fur allergy. <laughs> but who knows? Um, in fact, my, my boyfriend keeps talking about how he loves dogs and it's just like, we are never going to get a dog. And... And I haven't mentioned rabies. But... <laughs> you haven't brought <laughs> rabies up. At some level underneath it all. You're going to have to have that rabies chat at some point, Samira. Look, is it, there's two particular public information films about rabies that, from the 70s that really got me. There's the one that I can't watch, which is um, Rabies Means Death, which is about an old woman going through customs and she tries to smuggle a cat in a bag. Yeah. But it's intercut with genuine grainy footage of a rabies victim thrashing about on a bed and dying, essentially. Is that a and child? Is that like them, a... Is it, it, yeah. No, it's like a young lad. It's like a black yeah. lad. It's yeah. like a young lad. Yeah. But it's kind of, I, think, it's I this, think I'm thinking of that advert. Yeah, I can't watch it. I've got vivid memories of it. It's burnt into mm. my brain, but I cannot watch it. But there's another one. Um, it's a family on holiday in France and a stray dog comes up to their table that in an outside restaurant and the little girl starts petting it and stroking it. Next thing you see, she's having to go and visit a doctor because she's been bitten by it and she has to roll up her little jumper and the doctor brings out this massive needle to basically stick it into her belly. And that was another one as a kid. I was like, oh my God. I The, the, the shock tactics they employed to do with rabies was insane. Considering the last case of rabies in this country was in 1922 yeah but that's because that's why that's because people were terrified i think i think it's proof that yeah, it worked work. it yeah w- 
it it was the Channel Tunnel. It was basically when Britain joined the common market, as it was now known, then the mm-hmm. plans for the Channel Tunnel became concrete. And the tabloids latched onto hysteria. They said, right, there's going to be rabid foxes and dogs wandering through that tunnel to the point where papers like the Mail would have kind of Dad's Army-style maps of the continent and Britain with arrows pointing to where <laughs> these rabid foxes are going to be. It was all bollocks. But it generated so much fear that, I mean, I, this is what I remember as a kid. I, wouldn't, I would cross the road when I saw a stray dog because I was so terrified of rabies. It's amazing the effect. I, I think it's the same adverts. That, um, yeah, well, you know, I think there must be um, a, whole, a whole load of us who've grown up deeply scarred. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, I mean, you definitely. know, you, you've mentioned, though, you know, you just identified it yourself, Samir, about that kind of like, a bit of a running theme with with pandemics or you know viruses etc. Mm. Something that is kind of um, has scared you or scarred you. Obviously, living through the the COVID pandemic in in recent memory that we just had. How did that kind of live up to what your idea of it might have been formed through books and TV and films and so on? Do you know I felt so. It was awful. I was so privileged. You know, I was safe. I have a house and a garden. I was considered a, an essential worker because I was a broadcaster. So and I was still able to work and earn. And I just I had friends who were consultants in hospitals dealing with the horror of it. One of my friends, her husband died, you know, just they had 11 year old twins. I mean, it's just, God. you know, I'm sorry, but a lot of it was to do with, you know, the decisions that are being made by people in power. What is amazing is the scientists. And I remember interviewing, um, now she's Dame Sarah Gilbert, and she made a decision on New Year's Eve 2019 when she was getting the reports in there. There was a network of scientists talking to each other about what was emerging out of China. And she made the decision with her team to say, we're going to develop a vaccine, we're going to start now. They didn't quite know what they would be dealing with, but they put the effort into this, you know, because it's based on a particular pattern and you can then alter it. And that is what I find positive and exciting about how we can face up to natural disasters um well i would say there's a whole issue but it's a natural disaster but um so yeah i just find it awful but um, i'm also very impressed by people who held their nerve and made big brave decisions do, do, do you think we've le- learned from it do you think if this god forbid would ever happen again in our generation our lifetime that we'd be better prepared you know there's a lot of uh, inquiries going on at the moment do you think we've learned from our mistakes I don't know who it'd been by we. I mean, I don't think we'll ever have lockdowns again. I think, you know, you look back at some of the way the, 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 way the police were behaving and took great pleasure in, you know, £10,000 fines to young people who were at a party while we know what was going on in Downing Street. I mean, there's, there's so much that was so wrong. I don't know whether we've learned any lessons in terms of people who make decisions in power. A lot of decisions being made based on what they thought was going to be good for them and their interests. But I think a lot of ordinary people and have learned a lot. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's about the COVID pandemic, we had a, a, a big fan of Scarred for Life on Facebook called John Adam Jackson, uh, and he got COVID, and he was reporting every day how he was feeling, and it was getting worse and worse and worse, and then he, then it was his, his relatives reporting on him, and then he died. Um, much missed. Oh, uh, but, but the thing is, it's it was so horrible to have this happen in real time. It's just, you know, it, it was, uh, I mean... Uh, one of the customers of Steve's old shop, aged 32, something like that, they died. Th- 35, Dwayne. 35, yeah, Dwayne, yeah. Oh, long COVID. No one's talking about how many people have got long COVID. Their lives have yeah. been ruined. My, my next door neighbours, my next door neighbours got long COVID. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a shadow of his former self. Um, person two doors down has also got it. Um, so it, it was 
when you think back to it, it's just like, I can't believe that happened. I cannot believe that we had the restrictions that we did. Not that they were unjustified, but it's just, it seems like a different world now. The one thing I'll say, it's the biggest yeah. thing. I hosted an online event about bereavement with uh, someone who runs a podcast about grief. And there were 2,000 people on that. And people were sharing their thoughts in the chat. And there were people saying, I cannot watch the news when they show an ICU unit because my granddad was in there and we weren't able to see him. Mm. And there is so much unprocessed trauma that's happened in this country. They didn't get to go to funerals. There's been no closure. That's why yep. those protesters were at you know, the, the inquiry the other day with Boris Johnson. That yeah. anger needs an outlet. There's been no closure on that grief. Um, yeah. And um, I, yeah. I think that's what people have not thought through and un have underestimated how much mm. grief there is out there, which yeah. will hopefully find an expression at some point. No, absolutely. Okay, well, there you go. Your first scar is uh, the rabies public uh, information adverts. Samira, can we get your second scar, please? Yeah, right. Do you remember in the 1970s in particular, film trailers would give away the whole plot? Yes, <laughs> and 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 then and sort of the so I I I had not seen The Wicker Man until about ten years ago, but when the film came out in the seventies, I'm pretty sure I remember seeing the trailer for it, and seeing Edward Woodward in the flipping Wicker Man. Time to keep your appointment with the Wicker Man. Oh my God! I was just no. so appalled, and also in my local record shop, MJM Records on New Malden High Street. I was going through, they used to go through records there and they had the soundtrack to The Wicker Man and there was a big picture of The Wicker Man with someone in it. <laughs> and and I, I have, I think it's one of the reasons why I didn't watch that film until I was in my 40s. I was so utterly horrified at how Edward Woodward died. We should probably mention this episode contains spoilers for The Wicker Man. Spo yes. Oh God, Wicker Man yeah. spoilers. But like when you did get round well, to watching it, what did you think of the film, Samira? Did it, did it scare you? Was it was it as punchy as you thought it was going to be? Um, yeah, it was good, and the ending was still bloody scary. And what was great was um, is it Robin Hardy, the director, was there. Yeah, it was a screening at the yeah. BFI, and I asked him about what reception that film had had um, in America. And of course, you know, the Christian fundamentalists really loved that film because they and they backed its release uncensored because they sh they believed it sh proved that the you know what they what they believe, which is the devil is out there, you know, and and at work in the community. Wow! So they were but champions of the up. film. It was terrible. There's something very scary about um, like rural English or British kind of um, uh, occult. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, I'm going to say Morris dancing, that kind of thing. It's, you know, and singing and, and uh, old fashioned kind of like rhymes and stuff from, from like yesteryear. Do you know what I mean? That's what The Wicker Man for me is all about. It's kind of almost cobbled Cornish style streets with weird stuff that's gone in in the past. Do you know what I mean? Is that what? Oh, well, I see, so I see it as. as um... The idea of a cult where everyone is signed up to it and you're the outsider. So Edward Woodward is the honest, decent man who comes. And he's, he's, a, he's that amazing thing. He is a good copper and he's coming in to do his job well. And there's no one on his side. Everyone is involved in a conspiracy of silence. And I think that's quite an interesting metaphor for society at large where you let someone, you know, everyone just obeys the crowd yeah. to avoid being singled out. In a sense, it's the reverse of a witch hunt, isn't it? That's the thing. We, um, there was a SCARD. We did two SCARD for Life live shows about folk horror over the last couple of months, me and the third member of our group, Bob Fisher, the host. And we kind of pinpoint all the main points of folk horror. There's always an outsider who comes to a rural location, which is always secluded. And the, the locals are always friendly 
with a sinister undertone. There's always some kind of monument or stone circle or a wicker man and a ritual that unleashes the forces. And the wicker man is the absolute kind of set text for folk horror. But we also talk about how maybe our location, our upbringing as children informs how we feel about folk horror because I'm a city boy. I grew up in Liverpool and all the folk horror that I grew <laughs> up with, the Wicker Man, Children of the Stones, was t- basically it taught me that the countryside is bloody terrifying. Whereas Bob, the host, my mate, he grew up kind of in Yorkshire. And he, to him, he said, that was just a documentary. That was just another Tuesday. He found it very comforting <laughs> because that was just, like you said, Morris dancing was just a thing we did. Morris dancing. Of a Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I live quite near. I live a bit more countrified where I am uh, on the Wirral, uh, and I live near a village where it is very odd atmosphere when you go there. They have a shop, and it's called the shop, uh, and they have <laughs> two P's and an E. I imagine. <laughs> no, just the shop. It's it's, uh, shop. it's, it's a bit like the prisoner, and um, they had a uh, scarecrow festivals. They always have scarecrow festivals, which are <laughs> bloody terrible. And the scarecrow I always remember is they had a scarecrow called Dead Jenny which was to represent a child that had been killed in a car crash. Um, oh, my God. And they had these oh, scarecrows. And it's, you know, it's, it's an absolutely terrifying place that I'm thinking of sending my son to for school. <laughs> Where in the world is this? Sorry, I spent a lot of time in the world. It's uh, Thornton Hoof. Oh, okay. If you go to the, it's it's, it's no, 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 that's a different type of scare. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, well there you go. There you go. The, the Wicker Man, you, the the one, the version that you saw at the BFI, did they release restored. any new restored? So there wasn't any extra previously deleted unseen footage, was there? Something oh, it, it was as far as possible. It was the the best restored version they'd been able to put together. I mean, this was within the last ten years. It wasn't. It was only a few years before uh, Robin Sadley died. It was a big big deal. They had a big BFI re-release of it, I think. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Well, there you go, The Wicker Man in in at number two. Sounds like Top of the Pops. Uh, Samira, could we get your third and final scar, please? Mm, okay, so this is something where um, I remember talking to Tim Worthington about it as a, a, something which no one else has a record of. I'm pretty sure, not pretty, I did see this on television. So, again, you might need to give a spoiler alert about something that happens in the black exploitation film Cleopatra Jones. But there was a show on ITV schools called Picture Box and they would show you clips of films and things and then it's like it was like an English discussion programme and then the presenter would say, you know, so what do you think? And it's sort of like asking reading group questions. Anyway, they showed this clip from Cleopatra Jones in which Shelley Winters is the evil drug-pushing leader of a gang and Cleopatra Jones is um, trying to stop her and is being captured. And to punish her son... Um, so Shelley Winter's son has somehow made a mistake. He's in a car at a car, you know, one of the places where they crush cars and they lift his car at the car grabber and they put yeah. it in the car compactor and he gets crushed to death. And I remember seeing just that scene and it, on this children's TV show, you know, like a school's children's TV show when I was off school. Bloody sick. hell. And afterwards, the presenter said, so what do you think? Do you think she was a good mother about Shelley Winter? <laughs> <who's just laughs> her son? And I thought... You know, I, that is so 70s, is it not? Is that not just the essence of why I'm scarred for life? And years later, again, the BFI crops up a lot. They had a season of black exploitation films at, at the BFI. And Cleopatra Jones came up. And I didn't know what the film was that I'd seen on Picture Box. I just had a funny feeling that it was this film. And I went and watched it. 
and it built towards the scene. And I thought, this is that scene that I saw when I was about seven years old. Triggering. And I finally saw it in its context. And how was it to see it in context? That must, did it take the edge off the, the scary moment for you or did it teleport you back to what it was like when you first saw it? Well, the whole film is ludicrous and it gets more and more ludicrous. But, it, I mean, I just forget how incredibly violent and extreme some of these films were. Um, it was still pretty disturbing, but it wasn't as disturbing as seeing a man being crushed to death while pleading with his mother to let him go at the age of seven. <laughs> Steve. Well, children's telly would often do that in the 70s and early 80s. It's strange. They would. There's an episode of Tiswas that came up on YouTube a few months ago. I kind of have YouTube on in the background while I'm kind of drawing and painting and writing. And it was promoting, there was a competition, something to do with, um, I think it was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when they jump off the big cliff into the water. Spoiler. And they showed the full clip. <laughs> and they shout to, in unison, oh, shit. And they didn't cut it. And it just went straight back to the studio with Sally James, and I kind of stopped and went, "I just heard shit on Tis once <laughs> because it was it was it was to do with the competition." Was, I remember several examples of that where they would show the most inappropriate. There was a clip from like Enter the Dragon, I think on like Swap Shop or, or again Tis was Bruce Lee with his nunchakers just kicking the shit out of people. I'm kind of like, jeez. It was insane. It was just a wild west of a time. <laughs> Absolutely. Bizarre. I mean, I haven't mentioned when I was I used to go on holiday to India a lot with my um, mother and um, my cousins and things. And I had an older cousin, and he took me to see a Bruce Lee film when I was about nine in the cinema. Oh wow! It was whoa, <laughs> really violent. <laughs> well, there's an extra scar for free there, Bruce Lee. Yeah, just four. drop that one in. <laughs> Uh, well, they, well, there you go. That's fantastic. The the three scars then, Samira, the Ravy, uh, the Rabies public information movies, uh, number two, The Wicker Man, number three, Kids TV Picture Box, Cleopatra Jones, and Bruce Lee in brackets at number four. Um, thank you so much. What, what's next on the horizon for you, Samira? What, what, what's the next project that you're working on? Um, well, I'm interviewing Helena Bonham Carter next week. Oh, wow. Um, and Russell T. Davis about, um, what's her name? You know, that Crossroads actress. Noel Gordon, oh, Noel Gordon. Oh, yes. Nolly, yeah, Nolly. Yeah. I think Nolly, it's coming yeah. out on ICVX. I haven't watched it yet, but I wanted to, so I'm going to be watching that. I'm interviewing the, um, the creators of Ghosts, Matthew Bainton and Simon Farnaby, about the Christmas episode, so it's fun. And, um, and th- I, I keep meaning to write a book, but I keep putting it off. <laughs> um, oh, right. I, I don't know. But I've got to drop in what I've done to scar my own daughter for life, which makes you feel guilty. I took her to see... Um, Privates on Parade, there was a new version of it a few years ago with um, Simon Russell Beale. And I hadn't seen it. I remember thinking it would always be a bit like, it ain't half a hot mum. Oh, my God, there's like loads of men wandering around completely stark, bollock naked. You know, <laughs> they need to have showers. And as we were, as we were going into the cinema, my daughter was, sorry, into the theatre. My daughter was about, I'd like to think she was 12. I don't think she was. I think she was 11. And, and the usher said, are you sure? You know, the, the advisory is 14 or 16. And I went, oh, no, she'll be fine. And... Oh. You know, the weird thing was, it wasn't even the male nudity. I mean, I sort of said, well, in the end, you know, you kind of, it's like biology, but I sort of just know what it looks like. It was the way that they spoke to, there's one woman in the, it didn't feel the plot, but there's a Eurasian woman in the um, in the troupe. And one of them's having an affair with her. And he's the one who actually is a bit really racist about it. They use all these derogatory words to talk about her when she's not in the room. And I think that's what was really shocking for my daughter, to think of that's how men might talk about a woman of colour. Yeah. Um, so I have scarred her for life. 
We do talk about it occasionally. She seems to be all right. (laughs) So, I mean, was it awkward? Because, I mean, I I never forget watching, like, certain things on TV where nudity would come up and you like your nan was over and or you watching it with no, your mum it wasn't embarrassing it's just it wasn't embarrassing that way uh, you know it was just more it was genuinely quite disturbing i think yeah well um, you know what what doesn't kill us makes us stronger i guess it's character building is it that's what i told her <laughs> As she's completely silent on the tube home <laughs> well it's been fantastic to have you on scarred for life and thanks so much for sharing with us uh, samira ahmed thank you oh thank you so much Well, there you go. A big thank you to Samira. Uh, Thank you for listening. That's it for another week. We'll be back next week with another special guest sharing their deepest, darkest fears. Don't forget, if you've been inspired by some of these horrific memories that have been shared in this episode or any of the previous episodes, you can get the Scarred for Life books right now from lulu.com. Perfect Christmas present for someone in your life or just maybe yourself. Treat yourself. You can get in touch with us and share your scars on Twitter at Scarred for Life 2 or come and say hello on the Facebook page. You've been listening to Scarred for Life a stellar content production edited by Stephen Brotherstone. The title music is Scarred for Life by Soulless Party. Thank you for joining us. Remember, do have nightmares, and we'll see you next week. 